You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. We have a great podcast lined up for you today. Detect BEC and vishing attacks before the deal is done. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask my guests, Nicole and Ursula, to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Nicole, we'll start with you. So my name is Nicole Beckwith. I'm a staff cyber intelligence analyst for GE Aviation. Uh, In this role, I curate priority intelligence requirements with our key stakeholders in the Aviation Cybersecurity and Technology Risk Organization. In addition to collecting intel and delivering threat briefs, I also serve as the intel liaison to the Insider Threat Task Force, our OT labs and test cells team, and our U.S. government and law enforcement partners. Uh, My background, I was formerly a state police officer and a federally sworn U.S. marshal. I worked with um, uh, the state of Ohio and with the United States Secret Service as a task force officer and a digital forensic examiner. Ursula? Yeah. Hi, Casey. Um, So I'm Ursula Cowan, and uh, I'm a threat research analyst for Mandiant Security Validation's behavioral research team. Uh, That's a mouthful to say that I get to break down adversaries' tactics techniques and procedures, as well as malware into their basic behaviors on a technical level, and then we recreate that in our platform um, for our customers to use to validate their security controls. Uh, My background actually started in law enforcement, where I was a detective and became a digital forensics examiner working with the Secret Service Task Force, um, where we did cases such as child exploitation, fraud, um, and pretty much anything that had to do with some kind of digital media. So I've also worked as a SOC analyst for a large defense contractor before moving over to my job with Mandiant. I am just so (laughs) impressed with the resumes of both of you. Like, you're both such incredible women in cybersecurity. So thank you so much for carving out a little bit of your time to share your thoughts with me today. I'm excited to jump into our talk on a very important topic that has not surprisingly made a comeback during the pandemic, which is business email compromise and vision calls. So I'd love it if each of you could maybe set the stage with a little explanation of how these financial fraud attacks work. Ursula, why don't we start with you? Sure. Yeah, generally, an attacker is going to start with um, some open source intelligence investigation to scope out their potential victim or victims. Um, they oftentimes will craft emails in such a way that it's personalized to the victim, causing them to fall for an attacker's malicious email. Um, this could be an email where they click a bad link that steals their credentials, downloads malware, or even getting them to send money or account details um, for like a fake invoice or something. On the flip side, you have vishing, which is essentially um, very similar as the malicious email that I described before, um, but only this time it's over the phone, very similar to like scam calls that I'm sure we've all received at one time or another. Yeah, and as Ursula mentioned in her introduction, you know, um, so we both investigated these types of crimes as task force officers with the Secret Service, which is where we met, which is in Secret Service yeah. training. So. Um, we have both seen, you know, both sides of the coin from the public and law enforcement side to the private sector and corporate side and the impacts of both of those. 
So, you know, as Ursula mentioned, you know, OSINT is huge in, in these types of attacks. But the anatomy of a BEC basically consists of the attacker, the target, and typically a money mule and maybe several compromised accounts in between there. And so the initial compromise usually happens well in advance of any of these funds being transferred. Usually one or more of the email accounts are compromised, uh, typically through, you know, credential harvesters or malware. So the actor will sit and actually watch the emails flow through these accounts and who they're doing business with, if they have any, you know, upcoming large accounts or purchases, and how they sign their emails, if they use a nickname, um, just some of the signatures that, you know, go through their accounts. And then they'll also set up stuff like auto-forwarding to their own accounts. Um, and then the forwarded emails are, are typically deleted from the sender's account. And during this time, the actor is typically registering spoof domains. So they're setting up the attack well in advance of the actual attack. As Ursula mentioned, too, you know, vishing is a technique that's used to socially engineer a target. So we typically see, um, sometimes we'll even see a, a BEC or a phishing email that has a follow-up call or vice versa in order to gain additional trust before or after an attack is made. But it's also mm. usually a standalone attack. We've now seen attackers using artificial intelligence to impersonate somebody's voice so they make it even more realistic. Nicole, what you described when you described kind of how they set that up, I've actually seen at a different um, employer. I actually saw a company that they got their emails compromised. They had no idea. And the attackers, through email communication, they found someone that they were doing business with through email, and they were actually able to kind of man in the middle and, and become to those sending the money, they sent an email and said, hey, we, we changed our account information, so if you could send that money over to this account. And they got a couple of payments before that actually got found. And it was set up exactly like you described, Nicole. Yeah, and if those are successful, we typically see the money you know, being bounced back and forth through a series of previously compromised bank accounts. And they do this in order to avoid detection and make it difficult for law enforcement to keep up with subpoenas or search warrants. And on that note, you do have to act quickly, typically within a 72-hour period, to be able to get any of that money returned. So um, the attackers know that time is actually on their side. So you need to work with your bank immediately to initiate the financial fraud kill chain to be able to stop that money transfer. So I want to talk a little bit about, because it, it really does sound like, um, Nicole, you mentioned, you know, building trust, and it sounds yeah. very much like that is one of the most effective sort of tactics that help these attackers, these cyber criminals, be so successful with BEC and vision calls. Is there anything else that's contributing to the success cyber criminals are having here? And I guess a follow-up to that is, like, who are they targeting and why do cyber criminals go after that subset of their targets? Um, and is that another reason who they're targeting? Is that what makes them also successful? So lots of questions in one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, quite frankly, they are successful because we are trusting and we are you know, helpful. So it's the human element. It's that psychology you know, behind needing to feel the positive connections with those that we interact with. 
So we want to make the boss happy. We want to do the right thing. And, you know, we want to help others out to their problems go away faster. It makes us feel better. So bad actors use this to their advantage. And as far as right now, and with all of us you know, working remotely and, and being stuck more at home, we're using the telephone, we're using our computers and devices in order to interact and do online banking and um, communicate with people that we typically would do in person. So that makes it a lot easier for them. Well, I was just going to say to that end, these criminals are super skilled in social engineering, right? And they know how people think and how people act in this day where we're at working from home. We're so um, used to communicating with people that we don't actually speak to on the phone or people that we don't actually see in person now. So it's becoming easier for the cyber criminals to convince people to do things that they might not normally do. Yeah, exactly. And as far as targeting goes, you know, they're usually targeting businesses that have large contracts, you know, suppliers, targeting real estate transactions, and most recently we're seeing investors being targeted. So I've seen smaller firms and businesses targeted or, you know, a company for a C-suite's paycheck, like the CEO's paycheck. But from the scammer's standpoint, if they're going to put this much time and effort into it, they want to make sure they're getting a large payout. So, um, you know, BEC attacks gross roughly $30 billion a year. So it can be an entire year's salary to someone in just one attack. So they're going to make sure they're getting um, their money's worth. And scammers watch the news. So they're looking for articles about big real estate transactions, new investment opportunities, or stuff like new construction projects, like a, a hospital that's popping up somewhere um, or a mall something that would have numerous contractors and maybe one general contractor. And that way they have multiple angles to work. They can see who the easiest targets are in the group for compromise. And then they're going to pick out the most vulnerable person there with access to the funds or somebody that they know that they can play on their willingness to help out, such as an assistant who just wants to make the boss happy, like we mentioned earlier. So they're really doing a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that they succeed. So, you know, flip that coin. My understanding is the best way to stay ahead of these threats as defenders is to be able to detect the fraud before the money is sent out. So can you share with our listeners the best strategies for BEC detection? I think that it's really important that we're training the people like Nicole mentioned who are the most at risk in an organization. We want to make sure that they know what they're looking for, that they're looking over these communications carefully, especially when they are new, not from someone they've done business with before, or if anything seems to have changed, maybe the language um, within the email communication, um, if the tone has changed from what they knew before. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a customer from the U.S. and their English is wildly off, that could be a red flag. Um, it could be legitimate, but it could be a red flag that there's something off there. Definitely check and make sure that they aren't like typo squatting um, domains that they might have a, inside their email. Um, a lot of times they craft these emails to look exactly like what you're expecting. Um, they might put an extra letter somewhere, like an extra O in Google or um, something like that. So 
you want to make sure that if it doesn't look normal and something looks off, um, find the person's phone number independent to the email that you're doing the communication with, um, whether it's like through a company directory or going online to find their website and calling up the main number to get to the person that you're supposed to be speaking with and make sure that that communication is legitimate. Um, definitely want to make sure that you're safe before you send out a huge sum of money like what Nicole mentioned before to the wrong place. And some of the red flags that we see with these are the sender creating a sense of urgency, you know, um, hey, I'm on the phone with so-and-so right now. Can you please send us so that I can make sure that they're good to go before we hang up the call? Um, and they want it done. And it's always it somebody that the employee is not going to want to actually call up, like the CEO or some other C-level exec, right? Like nobody's going to want to have to double-check, right? Um, in the amateur emails that we see, you know, you may be able to see the typo-squatted domain like Ursula talked about. But in most cases, you're only going to be able to see those if you're looking within the email cutter. So it may be difficult. Um, language, of course, is always an issue. You know, I say this often to my folks, but if you see the word kindly, you know, run. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, uh, language can, of course, be an issue. Um, and if there are multiple recipients receiving the email, if the signatures or the context seems off, then, you know, make sure that you're doing your due diligence. Um, but two of the most effective ways to stop this is, you know, education, like we've mentioned, and make sure that they're, you know, understanding the red flags and that the employees feel comfortable getting a second opinion. Um, and then the second way is to implement a policy of actually calling the company itself and talking to a real person, somebody that you already have a rapport with, so that you can confirm what they're asking for. Even if you have a passphrase or a PIN code set up uh, ahead of time, that can help as well. I think that's a great suggestion. I hadn't thought of that before, but just making it standard that if you're going to transfer a money amount over whatever is predetermined, that you have to call somebody from that other company to make sure that it is them and that you are sending it to the right account information. That's a great suggestion, Nicole. Thanks. Yeah. So you started to touch upon ways to detect and prevent and even getting a little bit towards training employees. Aside from being able to detect these threats before sending off the funds, what can organizations do, and for that matter, what can people do to limit their risk of falling victim to BEC attacks as well as phishing and even phishing? You know, I was just writing my weekly news roundup and saw one of the posts for this week was that, Sixteen Shop had hosted a fishing kit for Cash App, right, for seventy dollars. And you know how many people use Cash App and Venmo. And um, so, how does the average person protect against these kinds of frauds? Sure. So you know, Ursula mentioned education, and we've, we'll say this throughout this whole podcast, but it really is that important. You know, make sure that you are educating your employees, your family members, um, your kids to make sure that they're not falling for something that could be prevented just by education. Um, but also, you know, make sure that we're setting up multi-factor authentication, even on personal accounts. You know, most companies implement multi-factor authentication, so make sure you're doing that on your personal accounts as well. 
Um, of course, use strong passwords. You know, that's um, said over and over again. And don't reuse your passwords. But I would also say have a contact at your bank that you trust. And for organizations, you really do need to have a secondary sign-off. To, you know, it's just that second set of eyes that really does help prevent not only this type of fraud, but all other types of fraud as well. Um, and having said that, you can't completely rely on your end users. From an IT standpoint, there's so many things you can do, um, such as enabling spam filters. You know, that's something that's really easy to do. Um, implementing DMARC, if you aren't already doing so, you know, this protects against domain spoofing and the type of squatting that Ursula mentioned. That can be a process, so it's not something that is perfected overnight. It's going to take some time. Um, and then set up additional alerts and rules for your most vulnerable employees. You make sure that you know, those that are handling financial transactions have additional rules and alerts set up for their email accounts. And then review all your other security controls, too, because you may have a bunch at your disposal that you're not aware of. Yeah, I think everything that Nicole said is spot on and pretty much everything that I would have suggested as well. Um, I think, too, that, you know, if you have the ability as an organization when you're doing education, um, you know, take a minute or two of the presentation and do a little bit of just personal education for your employees as well. I think if you get them invested in how that affects them personally, um, they're going to transfer that over to, you know, being even more vigilant when they're at work as well. Um, and just one person to add into what Nicole was saying, teaching your family members. Um, and then, of course, don't forget to also bring your elderly family members into that loop as well because a lot of them aren't familiar with fishing and vishing. And so that's just a good sec that you want to make sure you're protecting also. I think it's interesting, like, so much of what you said is, super helpful and there's training and then there's training for the different people as you just touched upon Ursula. So I want to maybe dig a little bit into what are some of the ways to help raise awareness among those who handle these financial transactions? What sort of specific training might be better suited for that sector of your employees to help mitigate the risk of these types of financial frauds? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for them, you really have to get detailed. You know, it's it's fine to go high level with some of your other employees, but for them, at least once a year, you need to do a formal training that reviews, you know, the details and the anatomy of that BEC attack. And you have to give them real-life examples. You know, people don't like to think in hypotheticals. They want to see the real impact that this can have on them um, and the company. So, Make sure that when you are doing this training, use those examples that you've seen in your environment. Maybe there's something that has come up in the past year that you can use as the example in your training. I'm pretty sure Nicole is reading my notes. <laughs> yeah, I, com- I completely agree. Use real world examples because, like, when we do, there's so much training that's put out there that could be given to any organization, and it's super, super generalized. They need to see emails that the SOC has received. They need to look at emails that they've had before. They need to see, like, what they will actually see in their own environment. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, I so agree with that. 
<laughs> yeah, we finish each other's sentences sometimes. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, another thing that you can do is to simulate a BEC attack. You know, we oftentimes simulate phishing exercises and have phishing exercises in emails. But most companies don't think to simulate a BEC attack. Um, and that's something that you can target towards those employees. It doesn't have to be to the entire you know, organization. Um, and that's been pretty successful in all the companies that I've worked with. I think what would be great is um, for companies, when they do education, I feel like for the most part, most companies are doing the right thing. They're trying to make sure that they educate their employees, but I think they need to reevaluate if they feel like it's working effectively um, because I feel like, especially in large organizations where you have a lot of different departments with a lot of different job functions, tailoring the training to who is most at risk is really important too, because like if you are training the cafeteria worker who gets emails and gets phone calls, the type of phishing or vishing that they might experience is going to be completely different from human resources, right? Um, if somebody in the cafeteria gets somebody sending them their resume, they're probably not going to download it, but it's very possible that HR might. Um, so, tailoring that specifically to the employees is, number one, going to give them more ownership in it. They know what they're actually looking for. If it's super generalized and something comes through, um, they may not recognize it because it actually pertains to their area, and so they're looking for something completely different. Yeah, and I will just add on that although we keep hitting on training, I, I want to make it you know, clear that it's not just a once a year thing. It's not a once a month thing. You really have to have that open line of communication throughout the entire year. And if you see something that pops up, if there's a new event or a new scam that you see that comes out, you make sure you're having those frequent conversations or sending awareness emails to those employees who may be targeted. I like having continued training, but I also think we need to like make the training not crazy long, right? Short spurts periodically and frequently throughout the year, just enough to give them something that they can grasp and hold on to. Because if we give them these, you know, half hour even trainings constantly throughout the year, I, I feel like it's not going to be as impactful if we give them short spurts of training. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by this whole conversation of training, and I do want to go back to Nicole, a point that you made about there's a lot of phishing simulation attacks, but not so much companies don't as frequently offer BEC simulation. And totally understand you may not know the answer to this, but why is that? You know, I think that most companies feel that it's going to be caught, that they have the measures in place to catch that, or that the training is, quite frankly, enough to be able to stop that at the end user level. And so I don't think that they differentiate between phishing exercises and BEC exercises. I think they feel that it's comprehensive and an all-in-one, and, you know, their employees are just going to be able to realize that a BEC is the same as a phishing email, when in reality it's completely different. And you're dealing with real compromised accounts um, in a BEC on most occasions, whereas in a phishing email, it's typically a spoofed or type of squatted domain. Hmm. Interesting. Another point that you both have talked about is communication with the bank. And I'm wondering how organizations can better work with their banks and their cyber teams to develop more enhanced training programs. 
I think the cyber teams um, should really be kind of assisting and putting together that training. Um, oftentimes, training is coming from an outside organization. Um, but the cyber teams, they know the threats that they're typically facing each day. And so they're going to be the best resource to train the employees on what to look for. Um, kind of like I mentioned before of, you know, short trainings with actual case examples, like Nicole mentioned earlier. But, yeah, making sure that they actually are, are getting in front of them examples of what they can expect is going to be really important for them to be able to recognize it when it comes through. Yeah, and so often in cybersecurity, we tend to live in this bubble. You know, we respond as a team to threats. We know what the current threats are and where they exist, but organizations need to really get the perspective from each stakeholder when they're developing the training. So a bank is going to have a different viewpoint than a cyber team is going to have. And each perspective is just going to assist in developing a more well-rounded training. So you need to really work with all of those teams to make sure that all viewpoints are recognized. And to that point, you know, we, we keep talking about training and, you know, the cyber team doing the training. Are we at a point where, you know, we can just assume that organizations do have security awareness training as part of their overall cybersecurity strategy? Are we there yet? So, you know, I'm always constantly surprised at what I think that most companies are doing and what they're actually doing. Um, I think that most companies either have it in their head that this is on their to-do list, but it's kind of on the back burner because it does take time. It does take effort. Um, you know, it takes money if you're going to hire an outside organization. So I think we still have a long ways to go. Um, we still need to make sure that we're training all of our end users in their respective functions so that they know what they've got coming in. Um, why is, you know, same what I said earlier is money, time, and effort that has to be, you know, put into creating these programs. Yeah, and when you're fighting fire, it's hard to take the time and, you know, move around resources to develop something totally new. So before we wrap up, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Sure. I would just say, you know, make sure you're taking the time to plan for these events ahead of time. You don't want to be scrambling around at the last minute getting information when time is of the essence in these kind of, uh, of attacks. So you need to have IT, legal, and a bank contact for after-hours emergencies as well. So often we see these happen on a Friday. So come Monday, you really need to be able to hit the ground running to stop it. And then finally, you know, educate your employees and plan ahead of time um, as well. And then most importantly, make sure everyone knows that it's human to make mistakes. We all do it. Um, so as soon as you suspect something, report it. Even if you aren't sure, it's better to get ahead of this instead of finding out weeks later when the money is, is long gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to further what Nicole is saying with it's human to make mistakes, creating an environment where employees feel comfortable coming forward and saying, hey, I may have messed up is really important. I also think it's important to kind of recognize how important each of our employees' roles is to keeping the organization safe. Um, and we need to find ways to engage the employees in giving them a sense of responsibility and ownership for their part in security. Um, I've worked in places where people 
didn't feel that where they were in the chain um, made a difference and that they didn't have to be as security conscious as somebody in like finance who deals with the money, right? People often think that because they don't make huge big decisions that they can't really impact the security. Um, and I think it's really important that we tailor our training to people so that they understand. I know I've said this before, but I think it's really important to make sure that we have effective training. It's great if we implement training, but it's not great if nobody is paying attention or if nobody's getting engaged and actually concerned about weird emails that are coming into their email box. We want to make sure that they're alerting the security folks to suspicious emails have some kind of program set up so that they can forward these suspicious emails versus just deleting them from, you know, their inbox. Because while it's wonderful that they may not have clicked the link, downloaded something, or engaged with the threat actor through email, um, we also need to know what's going on and what those threats are that are coming in. Yeah, so the training really has to result in changing behavior rather than just raising awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Ursula and Nicole, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you again so much for taking the time to share your expertise with our audience. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast. Interested in being a guest on our podcast? Visit rsaconference.com to learn how to become a contributor.